Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today's show is yet another first for the podcast. The first time I will be discussing a single film, Tapeheads. Tapeheads is not a very well-known film, despite its pedigree, and I am willing to admit it's not a great movie. But it is a good, fun, silly movie, especially if you're from the time frame the movie parodies and satirizes. Tapeheads was the brainchild of writer-director Bill Fishman and writer-producer Peter McCarthy. Fishman, a music video director who had made videos for The Georgia Satellites. My honey, my baby, don't put my love upon no shelf. She said, don't give me no lines and keep your hands to yourself. The Monkees. And suicidal tendencies. I was in my room, and I was just like staring at the wall, thinking about everything. But then again, yeah, I was thinking about nothing. And then my mom came in, and I didn't even know she was there. She called my name, and I didn't hear her. And then she started screaming, Mike, Mike. And I go, what? What's the matter? She goes, what's the matter with you? I go, there's nothing wrong, Mom. She goes, don't kill me, Dad. You're on drugs. I go, no, Mom, I'm not on drugs. I'm okay. I'm just thinking, you know. Why don't you give me a Pepsi? She goes, no, you're on drugs. making his feature directing debut on this film. McCarthy, by this point, had already produced Repo Man and Sid and Nancy, and would, after Tapeheads, produce I'm Gonna Get You Sucka with Keenan Ivory Wayans, whose success would lead to In Living Color, which would change the direction of comedy after that. McCarthy would be making his feature screenwriting debut with this film. Fishman and McCarthy came up with the story for Tapeheads with Jim Hertzfeld, who would go on to write the screenplays for Meet the Parents and Meet the Fockers, and Ryan Rowe, who would later co-write the screenplay for the 2000 big-screen adaptation of Charlie's Angels with Ed Solomon, himself the co-creator of Bill and Ted and the co-writer of Men in Black. They both would be getting their first movie credits with this film. The screenplay would come together throughout 1984 and 1985, and would be a production of NBC Productions and Pacific Art Pictures. NBC Productions was the movie production arm of the television network, as ABC had in the 80s with ABC Motion Pictures, and CBS would later have with CBS Pictures. Pacific Arts Pictures was the production company of former monkey Michael Nesmith, who would also have a cameo in the film. 
The producers would make a distribution deal early in 1986 with the new De Laurentiis Entertainment Group at a budget of $4 million. Production on tapeheads would begin in Wilmington, North Carolina on February 2, 1987. For Robbins, this would be the end of One Road. This would be his last movie he'd make before shooting his breakthrough role as Ebby Calvin Nuke Lelouch in Ron Shelton's masterful Bull Durham, which would also shoot in and around North Carolina in October 1987. Bull Durham is also, of course, where he met Susan Sarandon, who would become his longtime companion and mother to their sons Jack Henry and Miles. Interestingly, Kuzak's next movie would also be a baseball movie, John Sayles' Eight Men Out. Tapeheads would be the second movie Robbins and Kuzak would make together. Robbins would have a small but important role in Rob Reiner's 1985 teen comedy, The Sure Thing, and the two would make four more films together. Kuzak would have a cameo as, him, as himself in Robert Altman's 1992 classic The Player, and then play a fictional version of a person not unlike John Kuzak in Robbins' 1990 debut as a writer and director, Bob Roberts. Kuzak would also star in Robbins' 1999 directorial effort, The Cradle Will Rock, and Robbins would have a hilarious and memorable supporting role in Stephen Frears' 2000 classic High Fidelity, which was co-written and co-produced by Kuzak. I'm not quite sure where they were in their friendship in the winter of spring of 1987, but what comes across abundantly in the film is that these two felt comfortable with one another. The way they bounce off one another, the way they interact, they feel like they've been friends forever. It also feels like we may have missed out on more funny movies with them. One of the things I missed about the good old studio days is how they would create comedy teams that would work together over and over again. Of course, there's the obvious ones like Laurel and Hardy or Hope and Crosby. And there's my personal favorites, Myrna Loy and William Powell, best known as Nora and Nick Charles in the popular Thin Man series, but would also be featured in a total of 13 movies together between 1934 and 1947. So exceptional was their chemistry together that many film fans of the day thought Loy and Powell were married in real life. In some alternative timeline, the comedy team of Kuzak and Robbins made a number of hilarious hit comedies full of snark and wit and little life lessons buried just under the context. And speaking of Bob Roberts, the character would make an appearance of sorts in Tapeheads four years before Robbins would craft the film that bore the character's name. In the background of a scene towards the middle of the movie, as Josh and Belinda talk about Josh and his ambitions, you can hear a song that sounds a lot like Retake America, and you'd be right. The snippet is credited as Repave America, written by Tim Robbins, performed by Bob Roberts, produced by David Robbins, Tim's brother, and a choir conducted by his father, Gil Robbins, the former singer of the 1960s folk group, The Highwaymen. But, like with Bob Roberts, Robbins didn't want people taking the song out of the context of the movie and misappropriating it for the wrong reasons, so the song would not be included on the accompanying soundtrack. As for the movie itself, Robbins and Cusack star as Josh and Ivan, two 20-something losers who have been friends for their entire lives, who, after losing their jobs as security guards, 
decide to try their luck at making music videos. Josh the creative, Ivan the brains. Except, they're both rather inept at pretty much everything. After Josh gets kicked out of his house by his parents for making a mess of their home, Josh and Ivan stumble into a series of lucky breaks. They're able to find a huge loft to live in downtown, rent-free, and they meet the right people at the right time to help them move ever forward. With a stupid mistake from Ivan leading them to becoming famous, and all of this gets them to meeting their idols, Billy and Lester Diamond, also known as the Swanky Modes, and getting the Modes their biggest gig in decades. From all accounts, the production ran rather smoothly, and the film was completed in time to have its first public screening at the 1988 Sundance Film Festival, then known as the U.S. Film Festival, ahead of its planned March 1988 theatrical release. As previously mentioned, the movie was set to be released by the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, the production and distribution company started by legendary Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis after he purchased the remnants of Embassy Pictures from Columbia owner Coca-Cola in the fall of 1985. But despite producing several future classics, including David Lynch's Blue Velvet and Michael Mann's Manhunter, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group was beset by financial troubles from the outset, and the company would file for bankruptcy in August of 1988. However, the month before, due to those financial concerns, the distribution rights to this movie reverted back to the producers of the film. They would make a deal with the newly created independent label Avenue Pictures, for whom this would be the first theatrical release. Avenue Pictures would later go on to release such films as Gus Van Zandt's Drugstore Cowboy, James Foley's After Dark My Sweet, Jim Sheridan's The Field, his follow-up to My Left Foot, and John McNaughton's film performance of Eric Bajagosian's live show Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll. The movie would have an official premiere at the Writers Guild Theater in Los Angeles on October 19th, two days before the film would open in 138 theaters in 48 markets across America, including Ann Arbor, Chicago, Los Angeles, Nashville, St. Louis, and Washington, D.C. It would be polite to say that Tapeheads was a bomb. The opening weekend three-day gross for the film was $133,330 from 138 theaters. That's $966 per theater over three days. $322 per day. Five shows a day, that's about 65 bucks a show. And at an average ticket price of $4.11 in 1988, that's less than 15 people per show, per day, per theater. To put that into context, that sub-1,000 per screen average was less than what Roger Rabbit and Die Hard made that weekend in theaters. Except Die Hard was in its 15th week of release, and Roger Rabbit was in its 18th. And that second week of release was even worse. So bad that Avenue would pull the movie from theaters after that second week. While doing in-theater exit polling at theaters that were playing the film, both from those seeing this movie and those that chose to see something else, they would discover filmgoers thought the advertising campaign was considered to be too hip and too selective for most audiences. They would give a movie 
a single play date in Boston in January of 1989, and then there would be one final chance at redemption, a single play date on two screens at the Quad Cinema in New York City on March 17th. The new ads leaned heavily into all the stars of the movie, even the ones who appear on screen for about four seconds, and all the different artists on the soundtrack. Seriously, the new ads not only hype up angry man of football, Lyle Alzado, but Xander Schloss, the basis for the Circle Jerks, who movie fans would know as Kevin in Repo Man, or Carl in Straight to Hell, or Huey in Walker. But if you weren't a fan of punk rock and you hadn't seen an Alex Cox movie, you'd have no idea who this guy was. But the movie really belongs to the swanky modes. Individually, Sam Moore and Junior Walker are amongst the greatest soul singers and musicians to ever be put on vinyl. Together? Well, I'll let David Letterman say it for me from a March 1989 segment of The Late Night Show with David Letterman. Yeah. Yep. Now, now we're getting somewhere. Now. Sounded <laughs> great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. How did, what was the idea, who had the idea for you guys to get together? I think that was... Uh... Peter McCarthy and Billy, uh, they don't want to kind of produce the shows. And, Are you talking about the thing. film now? Yes, I'm talking yeah, about the film. Yeah, it's a pretty good combination, isn't it? It's not bad. Yeah. It's not one, nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's, it's one of those ideas that is so good, you're surprised nobody came up with it sooner. Well, you never think, you know, that something like this, like a Stax act and a Motown act, yeah. would ever have, you know, gotten together. So that's something to think about. And uh, while I've loved the movie since the first time I saw it, I didn't fully realize way deep down of why I loved the movie so much until I saw this clip many years later. One of the great things my dad did give me was my love of music, all kinds of music. His record collection was massive. Hundreds of Blue Note albums featuring some of the greatest jazz musicians ever recorded. Hundreds of classical records from Decca and London and some of the greatest albums from Motown and Stax, the two best soul labels created. And while I would absorb the music of the likes of Sam and Dave and Junior Walker and the All-Stars, I would never realize that Motown artists and Stax artists rarely, if ever, played together. Granted, the Motown sound and the Stax sound were different sides of the same coin, and this pairing of Sam Moore and Junior Walker would be one of those very few times. And those songs were magic. I was a little bit swimming in a great big pond. Oh, oh, oh. You had some real good bait. Come give me some. I was swimming on the bottom trying to go upstream. Searching for an answer to a lonely breeze.
despite this epic teaming of two legendary soul musicians and the teaming of two very good actors who worked well together, the film would barely find an audience. When all was said and done, the movie had grossed a grand total of $343,786. The movie would start to find an audience when it was released on VHS tape several months later, ironically using the original ad art that was deemed too hip and too selective. But tapeheads would never quite achieve the level of a Heathers or a Knight of the Comet or a Spinal Tap. There's no iconic line one can quote to another person where both parties can go, Tapeheads! Fuck yeah! There's no song that would hit the Billboard charts or become a staples of 80 skewing music channels. And while Robbins and Kuzak were major talents for decades, one of them winning an Academy Award, they never became the kind of A-list superstars where audiences would actively seek out their older movies. Nor is there some minor actor who would become a major star years later that would cause the same reaction, like needing to watch Less Than Zero because Brad Pitt is in it for one scene and has his first ever line reading of on-screen dialogue in it. Well, unless you want to put Courtney Love in that position, I don't. There are a lot of really cool cameos in the film, including Fishbone, who also created the incidental music score for the film, playing a country music version of themselves called Ranchbone, Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys playing an FBI agent who arrests Josh and Ivan, Stiv Bators of the Dead Boys, who along with the rest of his new band, the Lords of the Nude Church, plays the lead singer of a band for whom Josh and Ivan are hired for their big break in the industry. There's quick appearances from Weird Al Yankovic, Ted Nugent, and Doug E. Fresh as versions of themselves. And then there's totally 80s people like Cy Richardson, Xander Berkeley, original MTV VJ Martha Quinn, Soul Train host Don Cornelius, and Bob Goldthwait, nearly unrecognizable playing a motivational speaker on TV, even taking a pseudonym, Jack Cheese, in the credits. My own personal favorite secondary character in the film is Mary Crosby's rock journalist, Samantha Gregory. It's an absolute caricature, especially in one scene where she gets into a nunchuck knife fight with another character, but she's clearly having a great time. And there's a few stars of yesteryear, including Clue Gulliger, Doug McClure, Connie Stevens, and Jessica Walter. I've probably watched Tapeheads 50 times during the 90s, and watching it again for the first time in many years, I still enjoyed it almost as much as I did all those other times. Most of the humor comes from beats and moments that should be universally familiar, but are still tied specifically to this era. It might have been like shooting fish in a barrel, making a comedy mocking the excesses of the music video industry, but it hits its targets far more often than the average comedy of its day. And the film really doesn't make a whole lot of sense once you think about it. It's an absurdist comedy, with every situation becoming more incongruous than the previous one, until it reaches a meaningless climax. The plot doesn't make a whiff of sense, and everything happens because it needs to, to move what little story there is along. I can see why somebody younger than, say, 40 might not appreciate some of the humor, or get some of the references, 
or miss why certain people were cast in certain roles, but for me, it's one of the most enjoyable comedies of the era. It definitely isn't on par with Spinal Tap, but I'll still take tapeheads over 98% of all the movies released during the decade. As of this recording, August 2020, the film can be watched for free on YouTube in a fairly decent transfer, letterboxed within an old Academy 1.33 to 1 ratio. You can find a better transfer on Amazon Prime if you have something called MovieSphere added to your account. We'll uh, talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. So please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which helps get the show seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Mm-hmm.